This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. I am the course chair. My name is Jen Matthews, and I'm an integrative pediatrician at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital Oakland and work under the Stodd Center for Pediatric Pain, Palliative Care, and Integrative Medicine. And when this opportunity came up to think about putting together a course for the Osher Mini Med School for the public, um, you know, I started thinking about what would be, what would what would folks like to hear about what feels relevant right now? And I have to share that I kept coming back to this idea of our mental health and of our community mental health and of our kids and adolescents mental health. Uh, I spend most of my time in my day working with a team and with colleagues in the hospital taking care of wonderful children. And we've seen, especially throughout the course of the pandemic, there's been a really big uptick and surge in kids with mental health needs. And we've seen similar phenomena with our adult population. So I'm so glad that you can join us tonight as we hear from tonight's experts and through the next five um, courses, five classes as well. I just want to touch on a little bit before we start and hear from our speakers, this idea that mental health, our mental health is not just an individual biological, individual or biological phenomena. While we know uh, individual health is important and that biological underpinnings are very important and genetics are important, when we think about our mental health and kind of the landscape of the things that shape our mental health, um, I really would like for us to hold these structural forces that really shape families, patients, kids, our lives, um, I think in, in what are much more meaningful ways often. And as we hear from our speakers tonight and in the next few sessions, our speakers, speakers will really be touching on these issues and how to think about things from a systems approach um, and really trying to tackle some of these really large issues. I'm excited to introduce our speakers for tonight. Everything, everywhere, all at once, integrative approaches to working with teens with anxiety, depression, and chronic pain. Lisa Wild, our first speaker of the panel, is a licensed marriage family therapist who's been practicing since 1995. She's also a certified sex therapist. She identifies as bicultural, Latinx, white, and queer. She's been working with UCSF Benioff school-based health centers at Castlemont Youth Uprising Clinic East in East Oakland for 19 years supporting adolescents and young adults. Our second speaker will be Dr. Christina Benke, who's a pediatric psychologist with the Stodd Center for Pediatric Pain, Palliative and Integrative Medicine at the UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital in San Francisco. She's the co-director of the Pediatric Amplified Pain Rehabilitation Program a volunteer assistant clinical professor within the Department of Pediatrics at the School of Medicine. She's a champion of prevention um, of interventions that address the intersection of chronic pain and trauma. In addition to pain and palliative treatment, she's specially training in trauma-informed care and trauma-specific clinical services. And I have to say, I've had the honor and privilege of working with both of these individuals and I'm so excited for the audience to get to learn from both of these experts. So I'm turning it over to you. Thank you so much. Like uh, Dr. Matthews introduced me, I am a clinician at the Youth Uprising Castlemont 
uh, health clinic in East Oakland. Our clinic started in 2004. And while we work with a lot of young people from Castlemont High School, we also serve um, Alameda County youth, um, the larger Oakland community. And we receive our referrals from the school and from our community. Um, and we provide um, thoughtful, culturally responsive, evidence-based, trauma-informed, integrated care, and pride ourselves on that model. We all have good relationships with our physicians, with our administrative staff, with our other medical providers, with our psychiatric providers, and um, we are a team currently of five therapists. And what we do, we provide um, individual family and group therapy to young people. Um, we are DBT informed in our work, and many of us also work from CBT narratives. These are other kind of therapy treatment options. And we have a pretty vigorous training program for uh, new therapists. And we provide uh, workshops and trainings to Castlemont High School and have presented at many conferences and collaborated with other agencies that are serving our population. Some things I, I have here, which may or may not make sense here, um, our relationship with the school does involve providing support services. And here I've indicated um, we participate in the coordination of services team meeting where our young people who are being referred from the high school for mental health services can be, we, we can discuss and explore what their needs might be and what other providers and folks on campus can um, assist our young people with. Um, we have been providing grief and crisis support services um, as it comes up, and, and that can be from an individual loss and just trying to be there for the family and for the youth. But also, um, you know, Oakland has experienced over the years a significant amount of community violence. And so we sometimes are available to support as needed when that when that comes up. Um, with the George Floyd resolution, which I've named here, um, we no longer have a police presence on campus. And that's been a big shift, hopefully a positive one. And I say that because interestingly, I think we've actually had um, somewhat of a positive relationship where we have had to utilize our um, OPD to assist with things like psychiatric hospitalizations for when our young people are in distress. So we are in East Oakland. I work primarily at um, Youth Uprising Castlemont Clinic, which is um, in East Oakland. We also have a clinic at McClyman's High School in West Oakland. And um, when I started at the clinic um, in 2004, these were our most um, underserved, undervalued um, high schools and un underachieving high schools with remarkable young people who needed support. Services are provided mostly in person. Uh, we do have medical services at our clinic um, four days a week and therapy services are available five days a week. Through the pandemic, it's definitely, I think it's changed for so many people, but um, 
there was a lot of telehealth. There was a lot of creative interventions and um, a lot of phone support. We also do some home visits as needed to support families, or we meet with young people in the community. And so, yeah, that gives you a little bit of background. Given the topic, I wanted to talk about a young person whom I've named um, Eddie. He is a young person that I've been working with now for five years. And at one point, he was a Castlemont student, cisgender uh, young man who has, um, he has been working with me for some time and continues to work with me. And I think of him fondly. Um, he's actually transitioning out of our care because he is now considered an adult and we are youth focused. So when he was referred, he was experiencing tremendous anxiety and the anxiety was showing up in different ways. Um, I don't know how helpful it would be to talk about it, but there were at the time, no issues around pain. I've shared here that Eddie comes from a family where both parents are immigrants without legal status from Mexico. Both parents um, are working in a restaurant where this young person is also working uh, and he's the oldest of four children. I shared here that some of the the diagnoses he's currently holding, um, if it's helpful to name this, include now his struggle with um, somatic symptoms. So Eddie is experiencing um, significant uh, pain that tends to move around as well as migraine headaches. And what I noticed, um, let me back up and say, after he graduated high school, which was during the lockdown and a very difficult, difficult time, I think for all of us, but for our young people in particular, who may or may not have been able to access things like internet in order to participate in school. Um, School was really challenging and young people were often off camera and not really able to engage um, with Eddie. He um very bright. He was a very bright young man. And I think the school was just incredibly generous with our young people um, and enabled him to graduate high school. While he'd been accepted to one of the CSUs to start in the fall, Um, It was evident over the summer that something else was going on and that maybe he really wasn't ready to go. Yeah, just not taking a lot of action around like when was registration, when is orientation, what's happening with classes and um, presented kind of a, a side of himself that maybe I'd not really seen before in the structure of high school. So um by the way, let me say that our clinic is located right next door to Castlemont High School. So while we're not in the school campus, we are available to young people just steps away. Um, during the pandemic, um, like I said, he got through high school, post high school, not showing a lot of enthusiasm around college, was feeling really anxious about um actually leaving for school and how he would take care of himself. Um, And these were all things that I would never have seen if 
we were just, again, it was just different in that time. Um, but he felt a lot of obligation to stay home and be present with his parents, felt really disorganized around school. And um, if it's helpful here, that was kind of the first time that I wondered about maybe more than just anxiety here. We had talked a little bit about the possibility of autistic spectrum disorder. His um, younger brother had been diagnosed with ASD a few years earlier um, through our clinic. And um, and he's a very self-aware young person who um, has suspicions that um, he himself might be struggling a little bit with understanding um, how to read somebody else's kind of emotional state. Um, he was acknowledging how friendships were difficult. And some of this I'd already known from high school. So, um, but had kind of chalked it up to anxiety. During the, the lockdown, um, we were able to refer him to a psychologist through Children's who did a, a far more thorough assessment. And that's where um, the autism and attention deficit disorder um, were diagnosed. And it made a huge difference for this young person in understanding the challenges that he experiences on a daily basis. And it really helped me understand in so many ways why kind of getting, getting it together, if you will, to go to high, to go to college felt um, so scary. And so things shifted a little bit and um, I've continued to see him on a weekly basis, sometimes twice a week. He's very motivated around therapy. Um, I have a really good relationship with both of his parents. Um, and our goal at some point is going to be for him to attend community college, which I think developmentally he's more ready for. And now that things have opened up, um, he kind of feels a little bit excited about it. So um, anyway, that gives you a little bit of a background. At some point in the last year, and maybe if this is helpful, um, he had been on, um, he tried actually a few different antidepressants during the time that we worked with him, which was useful in managing his anxiety. And often with anxiety, we see um, depression. I think it's a, it's a hard thing to live with. And so the depression sometimes shows up. Um, and holding that now in the context of understanding how autism shows up in his life as well. Um, he'd been on medication, but he had this idea about a year ago. And again, he was already a young adult a year ago. So he was consenting to his care all the way here. He made a decision to go off medication and did it um, with the support of our psychiatric nurse practitioner. And um, initially seemed to be doing well. And then the somatic symptoms started and they changed from week to week. And he experienced um, really profound and debilitating panic attacks, um, was going to the emergency room pretty regularly and nothing was ever found. And so I think he started feeling really dismissed that his suffering somehow wasn't being taken seriously. In an effort to better 
I don't know, understand what was going on with him. He spent a lot of time online looking up his own diagnoses or possible diagnoses, which then led to kind of worst case scenario diagnoses. And um, he would come in every week and share what he thought was really going on with him. Um, The cool thing about working here is that I actually do have some access to some amazing providers who can then link young people to other amazing providers. And um, one of the things that did happen is um, he was referred uh, to a neurologist here at UCSF who was able to evaluate him more thoroughly. And the good news is it wasn't cancer and it's not ALS. And those were some of the things that he truly feared. And it wasn't a degenerative condition. And he didn't have to think about whether or not he might need to end his life earlier. Because that became a thing also. Um, Anyway, he's in a better space. But we're still a work in progress. And I think I can go back and talk about him a little bit more later. So some of the things, having worked at the clinic for a long time, but having been an adolescent provider for a long time, um, I will say that these are the things that we often see in young people when it comes to anxiety, um, generalized anxiety. And I'm including some language here from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 5. These are our young people. These are individuals who experience chronic anxiety and excessive worry for at least six months and have difficulty controlling their worry, can show up as irritability, can affect their concentration, social anxiety. I'm guessing you all have seen this. Our young people are having an incredibly difficult time in social situations. So it's not just the awkwardness of being a teenager, but teenager having gone through lockdown pandemic, however, that they experienced that. And now these, the difficulties being back in school, which last year when school opened up were intense. This year, there's still a lot of difficulty. There's still, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Um, Panic disorder has definitely, I've seen that a lot more than I have in the past. In terms of depression, I brought two here that I'm highlighting um, as being often seen in a clinic, um, persistent depressive disorder and major depressive episode or disorder. And then there are a few others. But I do feel like it's important to talk a little bit about um, suicidality and self-harm behavior, which while there's statistics here, in the first four months of our of the lockdown, we had five suicide attempts. Fortunately, none of them folks were okay. But um, yeah, that was a that was a very intense time. Clearly, I'm still having some feelings about it. In addition to dealing with increased thoughts of suicide. We saw a lot of self-harm, um, mostly cutting, but also um, things around that we wouldn't normally think of as self-harm, but I think started to cross over like um, food restriction. Food restriction as a way of emotion regulation. Sometimes binge eating also as a way 
to regulate emotions. So now we were looking at young people who may have been dealing with what I think initially we think of as as an eating disorder, but um, I just appreciated that it was, it felt a little bit more complex than that. And um, I didn't touch on this earlier, but um, most of us work from, at least I speak for myself, a cognitive behavioral therapy model where we work with, with the young people to help them identify how their thoughts impact their emotion and subsequently their behaviors. It is actually a really useful model for teenagers. Um, And with dialectical behavioral therapy, and so grateful to have had training in this, we are able to um, provide both individually with families and also in groups, which we did several groups, therapy groups on Zoom, um, and they were successful. We are teaching some of the main kind of skill areas um, to our young people for how to address intense emotion, emotion dysregulation, manage urges to self-harm, and manage suicidal thoughts. And then, you know, other clinicians, um, I, I'm psychodynamic trained. I think part of that may honestly be my age, um, but the also narrative solution focused and motivational interviewing. I think working in the clinic um, and working with teenagers, um, we're all very uh, harm reduction focused on um, substance use. I don't think abstinence is necessarily like the first order of business. So more around supporting awareness around their relationships with weed or alcohol or um occasionally other substances, but I will say at least in the community where I work, shouldn't say at least, but most of our young people um, are dealing with um, cannabis and alcohol and not too many far outside that. I just wanted to acknowledge, highlight, feel grateful for the fact that we have access to psychiatry and not everyone does. Other other um, departments in my main behavioral health department don't have access to psychiatry the way that we do at school-based. And I know sometimes other school-based health centers don't have access to it. So, so grateful for our psychiatrists, our psych nurse practitioners who have been available to provide care through medication support and can do it in a way that is empowering for a young person to make a choice about whether this is something they want to do and work with parents, guardians to um, make informed choices. And it's not for everyone, but where it is helpful, it's helpful. And um, I think if, if there was an overarching goal in what we're doing, it's trying to empower our young people to make these informed choices for themselves and to know that they can make those choices, that things aren't forced on them, whether it's therapy, medical services, or medication support. The coordination of services team meeting is pretty fundamental in in school-based services. For us at Castlemont, this is a weekly meeting. At McClyman's, it's also a weekly meeting. And there are a few key people who are always there. And then there are other folks who sometimes come in, like a teacher who might want 
to address this. Are you in particular that's struggling? Other agencies that are on campus are present. And, you know, I mean, I mean, this long list, but it gives you a sense that um, sometimes there's a lot of, of really nice diverse representation. And the purpose of this meeting is, is to address needs that are coming up for a client and to kind of put it out to the group for folks who can step up and offer support. And sometimes those needs in a hierarchy could be, you know, this young person needs support accessing food or they're currently homeless. And, um, and yet, you know, sometimes when we're getting involved, it's usually because there's pretty significant mental health issues or there's a crisis or someone has recently died. And it really varies. And, and it's not to say that you only get one service. So, um, it's, it's been a blessing. And over the years, it's definitely become just a richer space to think about what a young person and often their family needs over the years. And I get to say that because it's been over the years. Um, our relationship with crisis response has evolved. Um, in the beginning, whenever anything went down, we were at the school and just mobilizing to put it together. And we had support from OUSD to respond to those things, whether it was like a suicide, which did happen um, very early on and hugely impactful for so many young people who had no idea who this young person was. That Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, community violence, things, things do happen, car accidents and other things, but community violence is like nothing else. I talked earlier about um, the fact that the therapists really made an effort to develop a relationship with the officer that was assigned to look after Casamont, for example. And um, for having to go through something like hospitalization, to be able to do it in a way where people could be brought in, it's very different. I think for the most part, it was very positive. We also really encouraged a lot of voluntary, um, I don't want to say voluntary admission, because we didn't always know that it was an admission, but I did name Willow Rock on here um, that provided crisis stabilization support and um, hospitalization for our young people. They're actually not far from where we are. And so crisis response, I, I guess what I want to say is it just really varies. And um, in terms of that, here with academic interventions, even though, you know, these are these are very school driven and often school initiated, um, we have definitely played a role in advocating for some of these things to be in place. Um, the thing about knowing students on the level that we do is maybe we hold a bigger picture and can advocate. 504, I didn't even know what that was before I started working here. And I do advocate for it often. Um, IEP has been a little bit different and sometimes it's a little bit challenging. It is, it is amazing how young people can get to high school and things they've struggled with have not been acknowledged. This slide was more about just engaging a young person. Um, the good thing is with Eddie, uh, 
he he's delightful. He's always engaged, actually. Um, and I think he has genuinely wanted support. But I, I put this here in case it is helpful when you're feeling frustrated with a teenager and you don't know how to get in there or be helpful. And so it's basically like, don't give up. Um, you can sit with them. I know I use the word client here, but um, just physical presence sometimes, or, well, you know, in this era of COVID, um, it's been even an occasional text message to just check in. Um, how was the exam? How, you know, how did this go? I just want you to know I'm thinking of you or like around grief, it could be circling back. Being comfortable to ask questions that are both direct and simple. With Engage, I was thinking about, um, we have done an amazing job of working to destigmatize mental health services. So we'll go on campus. I'll say, my speak for myself, I'll go on campus to meet with one of my young people. And there will be a young person in the hallway who knows that I'm a therapist at Children's Hospital and will say, take me, take me. Or young people who will say, I want a therapist. I want to talk to somebody. And then young people who are very boastful, um, who might say things like, I'm going to therapy now and pick up their backpack and walk out of the clinic because, or walk out of school because they're about to go to the clinic. So um, such a huge shift around um, the comfort with um, therapy services. I can't say that's 100% of folks, but it's high. So um, the collaboration is with anyone and everyone who ha- who touches that young person, um, whether it's family, whether it's um, guardians, extended family, neighbor, sister, play, aunt, cousin, whatever, but also who are the people at school who have contact with the young person? It could be, you know, Miguel at the attendance office, or it could be, um, the SSO, the school security officer, who um, is not a police position, just let me clarify, um, but somebody who's just sort of monitoring, who comes in the door, out the door. It could be the coach, so many different people, but to collaborate and connect, get to know the people that come in contact with your young person and connection is essentially an aspect of that. Collaboration and team building kind of an extension of that collaboration with the school. Not all of the young people that we work with are um, high school students. We also do see middle school students and we see what we call our community clients. And these may be young people that are no longer in high school. They may be in college. They may be struggling to figure out what they're going to do. But um, for our mental health services at at our clinic, we work with young people um, up until they turn 21. So when I have collaboration and team building, it's again, it's with all the key people that might come in contact with the youth. But often I think it's about also figuring out who else needs to be in this young person's life to help them be successful. It could be like a one-time only, or it could be engaging more services like TBS, for example, or mentorship through OK. Um, It could be setting up the medication evaluation just to give a young person and their caregiver an opportunity to know whether or not medication could be effective. Sometimes when young people are in the system, we've got a probation officer, we may have um, a child welfare worker. Christina. Yeah, thank you so much, Lisa, for 
all of that really rich information and also for your vulnerability. I really appreciate you being a human being in a presentation. So we're going to get into something that adds some complexity and confusion, but like Lisa, I'm also an integrated and embedded provider within a team. So I think we both have a lot of benefit and fortune in being able to work with other providers who can help kind of hug and wrap services around our kids. Um, and so we're going to keep down that pathway of talking about um, multidisciplinary integrated embedded services. So, but just a little, little overview about pain, because I think while a lot of mental health providers may think that they're not going to see pain in their clinic, that's actually probably not true. It's not a linear experience. It's super subjective. And there are so many psychosocial factors that directly contribute to our experience of pain. And what's really important to keep in mind for all of us when we're thinking about what the best care is for our kids that have pain and persistent pain, it really needs to be multidisciplinary care. So not just a, an MD or a physician, but also psychology, also physical therapy and other complementary um, interventions. So what is pediatric pain in my world? Well, it's, uh, it's a phenomenon that tends to be undertreated within our medical centers. Um, historically, if you even go back to about 40 years ago, 50 years ago, physicians weren't learning that pain, kids could experience pain as young as infants. And so the way it's been treated um, has really evolved. And so we're still addressing our pain management in our healthcare settings and increasing education for medical providers. So one of the common issues that I see is that when pain control, even basic pain control, like needle pain from a, from a vaccination or, or venipuncture can lead to long-term problems like needle phobias, medical stress and trauma within the medical setting, and then avoidance of medical care. You get kids that don't want to go to the dentist, kids that don't want to go get their shots, like their COVID shots, um, and just general avoidance that then becomes a problem over time. Um, with pediatric chronic pain in particular, um, it's actually relatively common. So some of some of you may already know this and some of you may not, but it's actually just as common as ADHD and asthma within pediatrics. And it's unfortunately one of the more expensive conditions to treat. So it's costing our healthcare centers billions of dollars in trying to figure out how to support these kids that are not getting the right care. Um, and then, of course, as we know, when it goes untreated, people are looking for the best way that they can to help themselves. And as we're seeing in terms of adult care and chronic pain, it's a direct contributor to the opioid epidemic. Um, as I said, pediatric chronic pain is actually fairly common. The most type, common types of chronic pain are headache and migraine, chronic abdominal pain, and chronic musculoskeletal pain. Again, with about, on average, 25% of a kid population at any given time experiencing chronic pain. This, uh, can, this issue can be even higher in inpatient settings for kids. And then unfortunately, the impact of chronic pain on quality of life for our kids is really significant. 80% of these kids will struggle with their sleep. 50% will struggle with school. So um, Lisa talked about 504 plans and IEPs across the board. All of my kids that I see that have chronic pain 
we request 504 services to help support them to stay on campus rather than avoiding school. Unfortunately, kids who have persistent pain that goes untreated can be at risk for even longer term disability and social isolation that can lead to some of those more significant mental health conditions that Lisa was referring to. And their parents and family miss work, they have reduced income, and siblings can feel alienated or ignored because all of the attention is on that kiddo that's experiencing chronic pain. So the prevalence of comorbid chronic pain and psychiatric conditions is also notable. Uh, there's a national sample of 6,000 youth that was conducted in this study, and more than 25% of those youth had both a mental health disorder and chronic pain. So youth with chronic pain are two to three times more likely to have anxiety or depression in addition. In one study on pediatric pain admitted to a hospital, so again, I said in our inpatient setting, this prevalence rate goes up. Uh, 44% of those that were surveyed were found to have a comorbid condition. So almost one out of every two, so almost 50% of those kids would both go on to have chronic pain and a mental health disorder like anxiety or depression. And then even more, what we see in this population, particularly with kids admitted, is that these youth uh, with chronic pain also have a higher incidence rate of PTSD. But what is pain, right? Remember I said it's a subjective personal experience, but what is it? Um, well, it's complicated. So the inner, there is a whole group of people in uh, the world because it's a, it's a pretty um, significant issue in the personal human experience across the world have defined it. There's a whole group of people that define it, and that's the International Association for the Study of Pain. That's all they do is study pain. And it is not just what we would consider kind of in the lay culture, that physical experience of pain, but it can be associated with an experience resembling physical pain, right? So it's a sensory and an emotional experience that's associated with or resembling what would be associated with actual or potential tissue damage in our body. So I'll explain this a little bit more, but just because we're experiencing a physical sensation of pain doesn't necessarily mean that there's something wrong going on in our body. So um, there are specific types of pain and uh, definitions of pain that can be helpful to remember when we're thinking about the individual pain experience and chronic pain. What most people think about when they think about pain, so if somebody injures themselves or somebody has an infection and they experience that physical sensation of pain, they're thinking about nociceptive pain. And nociceptive pain is really, we have these specific um, receptors in the periphery of our body um, that are called nociceptors, and they detect some sort of threat or danger that they then message up through our body into our brain and our brain detects that kind of computes and thinks, what is this? Is this something that I should worry about? Is this something dangerous? And it produces the physical experience of pain. So that is usually something you're going to experience in um, an acute injury. It could be something that you're going to experience after a surgery, all of those expected situations and um, environments where you would have an acute pain issue. But we see all other types of presentations of pain. Visceral pain is more typical in um, the gastroenterology world. So when you're having gut pain or kind of gut sensitivity, that's that visceral pain. 
Neuropathic pain is actually damage to our somatosensory processing. So it could be peripheral or it could be central, meaning like in our brain, there is some sort of problem with the way that our neurons are processing messages about things going in in our body. And that's neuropathic pain. It could also be specifically like stroke um, or other infarcts in the brain, or it could be damage to the peripheral nervous system. What we tend to see, and I'm just going to kind of lump the bottom three together in the chronic pain world, is this kind of overlap between all these different experiences of pain. In the, in the chronic pain world, we really kind of think about three buckets of pain. And this is also how just me as a non-physician, this is how I think about where medications are addressed, like how they're addressing the pain that we're seeing. Nociceptive pain is that acute pain injury. This is usually what we call opioid responsive pain. So this is what you're going to get a couple of days after a surgery. This is what you're going to get just for that really short period of time to address that immediate pain. And then you should heal and everything should be fine. And that pain will go away. The threat's gone. Everything's fine. Neuropathic pain in particular, again, is that damage to the nervous system specifically could be some sort of um, central somatosensory damage or peripheral uh, sensory damage. And there are specific pain medications that address neuropathic pain. Some of you may have heard of Neurontin or pregabalin. Um, the, the lay words are gabapentin and Lyrica. Those are very common neuropathic medications. And then there is this third, pu- third bucket, the nociceptive pain. This is sort of a new term um, that uh, the International Association has identified, but really what this is I, is naming is that kind of more broad, general, persistent pain that we can't really point to a specific nociceptive or neuropathic issue. So this is pain that arises from altered input of the nociceptive receptor. So you're getting a lot of stimulation, a lot of input to the brain saying that this is a threat even when there's not tissue damage. So you have all this activation of your nociceptors. Um, You might even have a little bit of neuropathic pain existing there, but we can't really identify anything underlying that that needs to be addressed with other intervention or medications. This is where we see the chronic pain. And so what do we do? So let me talk a little bit about kind of how I discuss chronic pain. So that's, I just went over all of the kind of pathology or the reasoning from a medical standpoint, but I get a kid or a teen in my office. They don't care about any of those terms, right? They just want to know what's going on and they want to know how to understand it and have a story to explain what's going on. At the core, what we need our families to understand is that pain is a biopsychosocial phenomenon. And the key two points of there is that it is psychosocial. There are, of course, biological contributors, but really, and interestingly, where we find the most um, effective interventions really is in that psychosocial realm. So this conceptual framework really addresses the different components of that biopsychosocial realm. And then I'm, uh, but I'm going to, I'm going to go into the more key points that I focus on when I talk about it. One of the helpful ways to explain the difference between having nociceptive pain and chronic pain is to tell these pain stories. So a kid might be like, well, I'm having all this pain, 
it hurts, something must be wrong, it can help to remember, okay, well, let's think about other situations where we know that what has happened to the body, even though it's really significant or really minor, it didn't really correspond or connect to how much pain was felt. So on your left, you see this picture of this really um, incredible story of this female surfer. So part of some of you folks may know her. She originally is from Kauai and she was on her way to being a pro surfer even before this accident happened. Well, she suffered a shark attack where the shark actually attacked her arm and she lost her arm in the process. She will tell you in her story, she felt absolutely no pain in that moment. And for a while after, and that probably saved her life, right? Because she wasn't focused on whatever that horrible pain sensation could have been. She was focused on getting out of the water and finding help. This isn't a perfect example of where tissue damage or injury is not the same thing as the pain we experience. A second story is think about when you get a paper cut. I bet if I even say paper cut, you can think about it. And a couple of you just went, ooh, right? That is not that dangerous. It's not a big tissue injury, but man, does that hurt? Again, another example where what's happening to the body is not the same thing as the personal whole patient, whole, whole person pain experience. So what are the key components of the mind-body experience or of that biopsychosocial frame that I'm really looking at when I'm meeting a kiddo? Well, I'm 100% always looking at baseline anxiety and worries because what we've learned from the science about chronic pain in kids is that it is a direct contributor to pain persisting and it can actually also directly impact what we would call an amplification of a pain experience, making it worse. I'm also looking about how they think about their pain and how their parents think about their pain. What do they believe it's for? What do they believe about what's going to happen in the long term and what they believe they can do to manage their pain? I'm also looking at uh, past memories of pain and what how they perceive those experiences because we also know that influences how they think about what the pain experience would be today. So again, using that uh, getting your, your shots example, if a kid had a really bad experience in the past of getting a shot, of course, they're going to then expect that the next time they get a shot, that it's going to hurt. That's an example that I'm looking for to try to make sure I'm addressing that in clinic as well. Uh, we also know from the science that the way that the parent responds to our kids that are experiencing pain directly influences how disabled they will be and how they cope with their pain. And then in just more broad, broad assessment, I'm also really uh, trying to understand their trauma history, because what we know also from the research is that if there is existing PTSD, that that will drive an experience of chronic pain if it's not addressed as well. So just a little bit about anxiety, the overlap between anxiety and chronic pain. Anxiety disorders are early risk factors, and there's this specific phenomenon called anxiety sensitivity, meaning that it's a, a fear of those sensations, those normal sensations that we get when we feel panic and anxiety. So we might get those butterflies in the stomach. We might feel a little sweaty. We might have a little bit of like tightness on our chest some like fast, rapid breathing, all those sensations. Um, for some people, 
provoke more anxiety. So if you have a kiddo who has more of that anxiety sensitivity, they're also going to be more likely to uh, react that way to a pain sensation. Again, I mentioned pain memories are, are, are a big contributor and something that we think about when we're trying to assess pain experiences and how a kid is going to respond to pain in the future. Uh, Melanie Noel is a really amazing psychology researcher up in Canada, and Canada has amazing funding for pain research. Um, she has done a lot of incredible work in this realm of pain, uh, and she is one of this this particular study that's shared here is that memory can be distorted, right? We know this from other research in psychology. So if it if a kiddo is remembering a pain experience in a particular way, even though it didn't necessarily happen that way, it's going to make it more problematic in the future. So one of the things that she's been building off of from that knowledge is if you can change the, the memory in the moment, you know, and a, a pain experience in the moment to be more positive um, or to help the kid feel more confident and efficacious, that actually sets them up better in the future for those particular experiences as well. Another really key component of the work that I do in my clinic is to make sure that I'm not only help, helping the kiddo have an understanding of their pain and a story for their pain, why they're experiencing what's going on, but also that the parent can do that too. If the parent themselves is still looking for an underlying etiology for the pain, if they're still worried that something has been missed, that is going to kind of make uh, the treatment approach for chronic pain a lot more difficult. If not, we, we're just going to not move forward until they're reassured that everything else has been covered and that the kiddo's body is safe to, to do this approach, this multidisciplinary approach to chronic pain. So uh, really have to make sure that the parents feel as confident in the treatment plan as the kiddo feels and that the parent feels confident that they can also back off a bit, right? So one of the things that happens, and this is very normal, is that parents intuitively respond to their kid's pain in protective ways, as you would, right? So in an acute pain issue, in, a, in an immediate issue where a kid's feeling pain, you want to address that really quickly, right? You want to make sure that you're they're resting as they should. But in chronic pain, we don't want them doing that. And so we have to kind of shift the, the response or the approach that parents are doing um, in response to the kid in response to the kiddo's pain. And the reason why this is really important again is that parent or caregiver behavior in response to pain really dictates the trajectory of where a kid goes in response to a pain experience. So let's say uh, a child has an injury or an illness experience that produces pain. How they're thinking and feeling about it will contribute, right? So if they have a lot of anxiety, sensitivity, if they have a lot of fear of that pain, negative experiences with the treatment, they're more likely to avoid an escape. And if the parent also feels that way, thinks that way, and responds to the pain in that way, that will perpetuate the avoidance. The key is really to try to prevent that cycle and try to promote and empower kids to feel more confident in moving in the other direction and confront the pain instead of avoid the pain experience. Again, and. Another key component, especially as um, ACES has been rolled out across the state uh, in our 
in our primary care settings is making sure that we are addressing, in particular, the resource needs that kids have. So this really names what Lisa's team does so much better than probably a lot of our clinics do in making sure that whatever, what other, what other adversities these kiddos are experiencing, that they're getting the resources they need to one, prevent further adversity that's going to compound their healthcare needs, and also to help them feel safer and reduce the stress that directly contributes to a pain process. So we do, we do also assess for ACEs in our clinic. Okay, so let me get a little bit into the treatment. These are the key components of any good treatment in pediatric chronic pain. At the forefront, the, at forefront of that is pain education. As a standalone, pain education is an effective intervention. So if you do nothing else with a kiddo who has pain, do pain education. And what I mean is going back to explaining like the neuroscience of pain and understanding why why you can still experience pain, even if there's no specific tissue damage. And I'm going to give you some metaphors for that. Um, Just as a resource, if you, of course, like don't internalize everything I say today, there is a phenomenal uh, website created by Jody Thomas, uh, who's a pain psychologist who was originally at Stanford, now runs this uh, website called the Meg Foundation She has so many great pain resources on here from managing needle phobia and needle pokes to chronic pain. And she has three videos here uh, that are listed that I use all the time, depending on what I think the kid needs. But each of those videos that are on this slide explain chronic pain as well. So let me give you some metaphors for how to explain pain to a teenager. The way that we think about the chronic pain as a problem is we think about it as basically a broken fire alarm. So imagine you're in school, we use pretend we're at Lisa's school in Oakland, and the fire alarm goes off. Okay. Well, the fire alarm goes off. We think we're going to call the fire department. They're going to come. They're going to go search for the fire. They put out the fire. Everything's fine. Everything calms down. People are allowed to go back to school. Great. That's what we would call nociceptive or or acute pain. That's the acute pain process. But let's say some prankster, some teenage kid decides it's going to be real funny to pull the fire alarm just for, for fun. And then the fire alarm keeps going off and it doesn't stop. So it's just going and going and going while kids are in their, their classrooms. This is the chronic pain process. There are, there's no structural damage to that building that you're in. There's no, nothing that needs to be reconstructed or addressed immediately. There's no fire going on, but the alarm is still going off because the wiring isn't working and the alarm system needs to be rebooted. This is chronic pain. So the other way you can explain it, this is, I bet you a kid could do this better than I could because they've basically grown up with computers at this point, but think of it as a hacked computer. So you have you have your computer, all the hardware set up. I'm looking at mine right now. I've got my screen, I've got my keyboard and my pad and my mouse, and everything seems to be in order, but then the computer freezes. Let's say you couldn't hear me anymore or it started doing that buffering thing. Well, we could check out all of the hardware of the computer. I could look at my keyboard, I could look at my mouse, I could check you know, is my screen something off with the wiring of my screen? 
if everything's fine with the hardware of the computer, then there's nothing to address there. What I would be more worried about is that the messaging system or the software of the computer, something is, something's overriding it. There's too much input to that software creating that buffering signal. This is chronic pain. And in order to address the chronic pain, we need a different approach. We can't approach, just like the, the broken fire alarm, we can't approach either of those like we would acute pain with medication or surgical intervention. We have to do it differently. We have to fix the wiring or the messaging system. And the way that we do that is with multidisciplinary treatment that reboots our nervous system. So the other way, and I have to borrow this from uh, Rachel Coakley at a Boston Children's. She talks about this treatment approach in the comfortability program. And the comfortability program is something that she created. I have a link to that at the bottom of one of my slides as well. But she uses the analogy of a tricycle, like a deflated tricycle. So you could go to the doctor. So let's say you have chronic pain, you go to the doctor and the doctor just gives you medication. That's great. Well, that's, but that's also just inflating one of the tires. You're not going to be able to move forward unless you also have treatment with physical therapy and psychology. All three are needed to address chronic pain. So what is, what is it that is most common in psychological intervention of chronic pain? Well, there, it's a modified CBT approach. So Lisa referenced cognitive behavioral therapy earlier in her slides as treatment interventions for anxiety, depression. It's also one of the more researched interventions, but it's, it's essentially a frontline and very effective intervention for chronic pain in particular. And the way we do it is that you add, it's a little bit modified instead of our typical tri triangle for cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the behavior thoughts and emotions. There's also an added component of the body sensations, right? Because you have the sensation of pain. And what the components look like are you have thoughts about pain, worries about pain that we need to address. And then, of course, very common to feel anxious and worried about how you're going to be able to function. You might feel helpless or hopeless in being able to get better. Those are the emotions that you experience. And then there are the body sensations that we're addressing. So tight muscles, feeling shaky or anxious, those kind of anxiety sensations we talked about. So elevated heart rate, feeling cold or sweaty on top of increased pain. Um, and then the behavioral components. So these are, these are like lifestyle behaviors and or coping behaviors. These are all components that we are looking at or addressing in treatment of chronic pain. And the most important parts that we need to address are that combination of thoughts, body sensations, and behaviors, because emotional experiences are going to come. Most emotional experiences are automatic. So feeling anxious or feeling sad happen very quickly, but we can change the experience by adjusting thoughts, by relaxing our body, using those mind-body um, interventions, and by changing some of our, our behaviors and our lifestyle habits. I'm going to power through some of these next slides because I think it'd be more helpful to, to get to some of the many questions that I'm seeing in the Q&A. But um, at the forefront in terms of cognitive interventions, a lot of what we're working on is reducing worries about the pain sensation itself. So trying to reduce 
the the perception, um, not reduce, sorry, change the perception of that experience. So the feeling and the and the and the confidence changes, confidence in, in how to respond to the sensation itself. This might involve some exposure or desensitization. So more biobehavioral, these are strategies that all of my uh, colleagues in the integrative world use as well. So this is this is where we overlap a lot. So a lot of those relaxation techniques, breathing strategies, guided imagery, progressive muscle relaxation, self-hypnosis and mindfulness, all of those are meant to address that body experience that is also contributing to the worries, that's also contributing to the behavioral avoidance. So giving them more skills. You'll see this a lot in DBT as well. I'm sure Lisa does a lot of these skills in her DBT practice to help with emotion regulation. So not only are you helping to regulate the body, you're regulating the mind and the, and the emotional experience. And then finally, last two slides. So parent coaching, we talked a lot about, and then I just want to skip. There's some books, again, for your reference. These really help. My favorite is The Conquering Your Child's Chronic Pain. And the next slide is the comfortability program. So this is a, a group workshop that is uh, both a teen group and a parent group. We are working on bringing it to UCSF. It already exists at Sanford and at like 30 other sites across the U.S. So there are definitely groups that exist. There is a virtual option as well. So if your families are trying to figure out what resource to refer them to um, initially for services, this is a great one to, to utilize. And then of course, there are some telehealth options you can refer your families to to access immediately. These are, these are mobile apps and websites that um, kids and teens can already access. Curable is really for young adults and adults, but it works for mature teens. It does have a, a subscription fee, but the web map mobile one is free. Uh, both of them follow a CBT multidisciplinary approach. And then the web, the Pain Bites website is a uh, Australian produced website that also follows that CBT model, free to access for anybody. Okay, so I'm going to end there. Thank you. Hey, wonderful. Thank you, guys. Just going to bring up some of the questions that have popped up. There have been some great questions. I think one of the things I wanted to start with for questions was um, you guys, you both touched on so many important things in your talks, but um, I think so many parents and providers alike struggle with finding ways to access care for their kids. So for not only for evaluations or for treatments, um, especially for transitional age youth. So those kids, at least as you're talking about, they're kind of moving out of adolescence and moving into young adulthood and we know that can be such a vulnerable time for these kids. Do you have thoughts on just kind of advice or thoughts on helping people navigate systems that seem already overwhelmed, especially for these kids that might be moving between kind of a pediatric system to an adult system? You know, I, I think there are some, and this is really like county and institution specific. I think there are some clinics and centers that do a good job of thinking about this already. So they'll have transition age youth, transition age youth programs and clinics. Um, in the world of pain, unfortunately, we don't do a good job of that. Not a, it, it's, there's this, there's a very different treatment approach in the pain world in adult services. It's a lot more, it used to be, I think, much more multidisciplinary and 
holistic facing, but I think it's moved into some increasing interventional intervention or interventional. Um, I think they still will tell you, you know, medications are not great for chronic pain, but it, it will be a different approach in the adult world than it is in pediatrics. And so one of the things that happens in our clinic is that we do find our pediatric pain physicians holding on to patients longer uh, to make sure that they're in a good enough place functionally before they move on to the adult world. Mm-hmm. I honestly, the only transition program that I have heard of that's in the, that's already been rolled out is at Boston Children's. There is, they have a, a transition aged youth chronic pain rehab program that they just announced. They literally just announced. Great. Lisa, anything you want to add? Um, I was thinking about, well, I mean, for our clinic, you know, we, we can go up to the 21st birthday, but our medical services, at least for reproductive health, will go a little bit longer. So in a lot of cases, it's not like a complete cutoff, um, which I think makes a huge difference because our young people are always ready for what they are experiencing in the adult world. Mm-hmm. Um, with mental health services, um, we go through we go through access and access that there are um, TAY services available that can work with young people longer, but it's, it's definitely a thing. And for the young people that I have worked with, with, unfortunately, they're young adults. um, There really isn't a good transition because we're already dealing with young people who aren't being able to receive all the same services at children's like the 18, 19, 20 year olds. Thank you. This next question is for Lisa. One of the attendees is asking, can you share what are some common issues that lead to teens having suicidal thoughts? And also, what are prevention promotion activities that are happening within schools that promote mental well-being of students? Unfortunately, whether we're talking about self-harm or we're talking about suicide, I mean, there's so many places where I think there is influence, but I also think there's so many places where there's also really profound despair and the kind of despair where you don't really see an out or you feel like, you know, maybe people would be better off without you. And that can exist, you know, with the realities of of poverty. Um, And we definitely saw that during the lockdown when folks weren't actually able to work um, and were stuck at home with multiple family members in a small place. Um, And, you know, whether or not like you had Wi-Fi or you could even get, I mean, we had young people who were just, we were talking to on the phone because they had no privacy to have a session on Zoom. So I don't exactly know how to answer that because I think it's so complicated and it comes from so many places. We, You know, I do know that the statistics are higher for um, LGBTQIA plus youth. Um, and um, I think that that is very real as far as um, so talking about it. Let me also say that providers working on being more comfortable, asking, tolerating, not freaking out, um, and letting a young person know you're going to follow up. Um, and then as far as school, 
we can all do better. That's all. Like there, there can be so much more happening on school campuses um, around suicide. Okay, thank you. Um, the next question I'm going to direct towards Christina, and I'm just going to read what the um, attendee wrote. I'm wondering about trauma-focused interventions addressing racist experiences for Black youth that they may be facing and experiencing in the medical system doing, due, due to their pain being minimized or reactions to pain being pathologized, especially in a situation like sickle cell. In some ways, my Oakland colleagues who work in the sickle cell program would probably be better able to address. I know that there are some really amazing psychologists working in the sickle cell program. And I know Marsha Treadwell, um, who is a longtime clinical researcher in sickle cell in Oakland, is this is something that she talks about a lot. But I will do my best to address some of this. I think one of the strategies or I think one of the, the concepts that's important for providers to be addressing is their own implicit biases. So understanding what those are and getting training around those biases to start with, I think is really important. I think the other lesson that I've learned from Dr. Treadwell is at the core of this really, and this goes back to Lisa's psychodynamic uh, training that she described, is the core is really the relationship and repairing the relationship that healthcare has with Black families. Um, and honest, I'll be honest, I don't I don't know what to say for that. I think that expertise comes from the Black community. Um, I think one of the starting points is being embedded in communities in a way where access to that information education is easily available, right? So being in in the high school and having healthcare providers where kids and families can access that information, um, I think is a starting point. Lisa, what types of integrative and complementary approaches have been tried with the patient that you shared your case with? Um, any mindfulness approaches or anything else within the integrative umbrella? I think in a moment of like, I don't really know what else to do. Um, I introduced brain spotting. Um, I'm not sure if folks are so familiar with brain spotting, but um, I've also been doing some EMDR. So they're sort of similar. Um, and the young person is really responding well. Um, Can you just describe what brain spotting and EMDR very, are very briefly for our audience members that may not be I'm familiar. not going to do a great job. That's I'm okay. really not at all. <laughs> um, but there, I will say that there's an incorporation of, I'm a super newbie, by the way, on those models. So um, yeah, and I wasn't actually even thinking I was going to talk about it, but um, I've, I've introduced it over the last couple of months. Um, and it works with things like um, bilateral stimulation, which can be auditory, it can be touch, um, or it can be the use of like a wand. Brain spotting is a little different where you actually help someone locate a, a focus of attention and then they kind of just rest there. Um, I don't think it's considered at all like a mindfulness thing, but it's definitely part of the process. And there is a sense of um, kind of a, a holding around the experience. Um, this young person in particular has responded really well to um, with an EMDR, EMDR, what's called resourcing, which is 
you know, some visualization around um, a safe, like comfortable space for him. He imagines being pain-free. He's in a place that's like visually appealing where he feels relaxed. He really enjoys music um, and playing music. So, you know, he envisions being in front of his piano and feeling the keys. And it was amazing his, his level of description around it. And he playfully then made a remark at one point, which he's like, well, I'm autistic. Don't forget this. And it, but it was anyway, that was a whole other thing of his way of saying, like, you have no idea actually how I experienced the visual, the sensory, the audio. And um, he was right um, because kind of therapy wise, we hadn't gotten into those things. So in this way, it, it's an invitation to just kind of sit with your feelings in a safe space. And there is just this invitation to try, um, whether it's um, the visual, I, I do the, the eye movement, but um, I've also taught him tapping, alternating tapping on the legs. He can do this one. And um, just reinforcing kind of the positive place. And he has actually felt that that's been really helpful. He actually, he likes CBT also when he's feeling a little bit more intellectual, but, um, but the relief has come more from uh, brain spotting and EMDR. That's beautiful. And I, Christina, do you have anything to add in terms of any of these other kind of mind body modalities that you use with patients with or Anxiety. Yeah. I mean, I love listening to Lisa's description of the way that she uses resourcing EMDR. I'm also EMDR trained um, because it also sounds like self-hypnosis. I imagine for you, Jen, who practices it as well, there's a, there's a lot of visualization and imagination to modulate the pain experience and to modulate sensations in the body. And so that can be really powerful. And so I just loved that description. And I use that a lot with my patients. Um, I think at as a standalone, even the bilateral stimulation in EMDR, so whether it's the tapping or different audio tunes or um, the eye movement is actually uh, effective at kind of reduce or lowering the volume of pain. And the reason why that is, is again, you know, chronic pain is, is really an overload of input, of sensory input. And when you ground yourself in that bilateral stimulation, your, your brain's paying attention to that experience and not this other input that's being interpreted as pain. That's kind of cool that way. Wonderful. Well, I just want to say thank you to both of you so much for sharing your expertise and your time. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.